et cetera. Um, some of you are probably surprised to see me standing up here at this, at this time. And if you hear a, a noise that sounds like uh, frying pans clanging together, those are my new knees knocking. <laughs> so uh, it's my privilege to stand before you this morning and open the word and share what God has for us. You'll find the sermon text on page nine of your worship guide. Um, if you are using one of the pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 977. Our text for this morning uh, is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. They actually printed the whole chapter, but we're only going to be looking at the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Um, I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible, which is going to be slightly different than the text that's printed or the text that you'll find in the Pew Bible. So let's begin. Uh, let's begin first with prayer before, before we read the text. Father, thank you so much for the way that you love us and that the way that that love has been demonstrated for us by the sending of your son to pay the debt that we could never repay to allow your son to die on a cross that we might have life eternally. And Father, I pray this morning that you would overcome my feeble ability to deliver a message, and Father, that you would hide me behind that cross. That we all might see Jesus and him lifted up and drawing all men to him. Father, I pray that you would be exalted by everything that's said, just as you've been exalted by the songs that have been sung, the scriptures that, that have been read, and the prayers that have already been prayed, and the offerings that have been given. Now, Lord, help us as we study together your word, and I pray all of this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Chapter 4 of Ephesians. Um, Ephesians is one of Paul's prison letters. Paul had been um, arrested in Jerusalem by the temple police, and he'd been rescue, rescued um, from that arrest by the uh, Roman guards that were stationed in the barracks near the temple. And uh, he had been delivered from the, the hands of those who were ready to stone him, and he's appealed uh, through different authorities, he's appealed uh, before uh, the governor Festus and then Felix, and then he's and then even before Herod, and he's appealed to go to uh, to go to Rome to be uh, able to stand before Caesar, since he is a Roman citizen. And while he's in imprisoned in Rome, he's under house arrest, but he's chained twenty four seven to Roman guard. He, he's uh, restricted in his movements that people can come to him and minister to him. And I just think about those Roman guards that uh, were chained to him. And I'm sure some of them probably said, oh no, I've got to go back and listen to that, to that Jewish rabbi again, ramble on and on about this man named Jesus. But according to what we know, that some of the, the Praetorian Guard, who were the, the gentlemen that were guarding Paul, actually came to know Jesus. They came to faith in Christ because of Paul's witness, even while he was in prison. Uh, we have the privilege of being able to worship this morning in freedom. And we know that we have brothers and sisters all over the world 
who do not share that same privilege. So we need to remember them as well. So I'll begin reading in uh, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, or he says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now the expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service or ministry to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The word of the Lord. Now Paul, as as we mentioned, is in prison in Rome. Well, he's, he's under house arrest in his own rented quarters, and he's, he's shackled to a Roman uh, soldier who is guarding him 24-7. Paul can't move without taking the Roman soldier with him, and the Roman soldier doesn't want to go. Paul's not going to go. But he has on his heart, God has laid on his heart to write a letter, and, it, and this is probably more, more than likely a, what is known as a circular letter. It may have been addressed to the church at Ephesus, and there were a number of house churches in Ephesus at this time. But the letters written to Ephesus to be shared with other churches in Asia and to, to give the message. Now, when Paul writes in verse 1, therefore, we need to look back at what that therefore is therefore. Because it refers to the first three chapters, the first 66 verses of this letter. And we know that when the, when the letter was written, it was not laid out by, in chapter and verse as we have it. Uh, you don't write a letter to your family and say, okay, chapter one, we're all doing well, and we'll hope to see you soon. And then you start numbering the, the sentences that you write. But... But Paul was writing a a letter full of doctrine and theology. The first three chapters is all about doctrine, all about what God wants his church to understand about why they are his church, why they've been purchased by the blood, as we sang about earlier. Because it's God's purpose and God's will that we know as much as we can comprehend about his will and his purposes for us. And he uses Paul and other writers 
to give us that information, to, to keep us in the loop, so to speak. So when Paul writes, therefore, he's, talking, he's referring back to what's occurred earlier in the letter. But now he's, he's finished with the doctrine and the theology portion of his letter, and he begins to give practical advice on how to apply all of that information that has gone before. And I better get my notes out here or I'll be all over the place. So as I said, Paul is, is, is chained to a Roman guard and he's writing these words to uh, the church at Ephesus. Now we know that uh, Paul had visited Ephesus on at least two prior occasions once he was there for a short period of time, and then later on he came and he spent almost three years in Ephesus teaching and preaching and mentoring and discipling uh, the new Christians there who, who were, for the most part, were Gentiles. There were some Jews that were sprinkled among the membership of the church in Ephesus, but most of the people were like, like you and me. They were Gentiles. I've been accused of being a Jew from time to time, but... That's beside the point. Uh, I'm a Gentile. Uh, my, my ancestors, at the time Paul was writing, were roaming around the forests of Germany, you know, worshiping trees and, and stones and things like that. But I'm thankful that because of the word that we have before us today, that God has made it possible for people all over the world to come to know him as their personal savior. And he's provided that free of charge if we'll just pay attention. So in verse one, he says, he says, I, I, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Now, that word worthy is a heavy word. Uh, and you think, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to be worthy of the calling by which I've been called? Now, if we go to the New Testament, well, if we go back all the way to, to Abraham, we see, or Abram, as he was called then, Abram was called to leave his home country and his relatives and go to a place that he'd never been before. God says, You've never seen this place before, but I'm going to give you this land. You just follow me. You just obey me, and I'll show you that land. So I'm going to give it to your descendants, and your descendants is, are, descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky. You, you read uh, chapter 15 of Genesis, and you see God uh, calls uh, Abraham outside the tent. And he tells him, look up in the sky, and he says, if you can count them, if you can number them, that's going to be the number of your descendants. And it says that Abraham believed God, and God counted that to him as righteousness. So that was, that's what, got, what made Abraham righteous in the sight of God. But the key thing was, Abraham obeyed what God had called him to do. Now, he was a human being. He made some errors along the way. Uh, God had promised that he, promised that he was going to have a son, and through that son, God was going to multiply Abraham's seed. Well, Abraham was 90 years old when he got that promise, and Sarah was past the, the age of childbearing. So Abraham took things in his own hand at his wife's insistence, I might add, so, ladies, you're not off the hook either. And so it, it caused problems. But Abraham had ob been obedient to God in, in leaving his home and going to this promised land. He didn't get to stay there. He went to Egypt for a while in disobedience to God. But he, was, he, he heard the call of God and he went. So we know that, that uh, Jacob 
one of the Abraham or Abraham one of Abraham's grandsons uh, was a devious character. In fact, his name means deceiver or supplanter. And God, God told him that he was going to make a great nation of him. He was going to make a great people of him. So part of the part of the problem was that. Uh, Abraham had, or I'm sorry, Jacob had an, a number of sons. Uh, the youngest, the next to the youngest, uh, had dreams. The older ones didn't like the younger ones' dream, talking about Joseph. And Israel, Jacob's descendants, 70-some people, ended up being in Egypt. So then God called Moses after a period of time and told him to go. He said, I've heard the cry of my people in their captivity in Egypt, so I want you to go and rescue them. And, and Moses said, uh, well, God, I can't do that. Even though you've displayed, you've, you've appeared to me in, the, in this burning bush that isn't consumed by the flames, I don't believe that I can do it. And he tried to talk God out of it. But as, Abra as Moses said, he wasn't a, an eloquent speaker. So God sent him anyway. God called Jonah to go to a place called Nineveh to preach, to, to preach destruction and death to that city. Jonah, being the good Jew that he was, disobeyed God and decided, well, I'm not going there. He took off in the other direction. And after a few days in very uh, uncomfortable and unusual accommodations, uh, Jonah was deposited on, back on the beach, and he said, God, I'll go where you want me to go. So he recognized the call that God had on his life. And then we, we see Jesus calling the disciples. When he saw the first disciples, Peter and Andrew, they were, uh, they were at the uh, seaside cleaning their nets. And Jesus spoke to them and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What did they do? They got up and they followed him. Jesus went a little farther on and he encountered two other brothers named James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they were with their father cleaning their nets and Jesus said, follow me. They immediately got up, the scripture says they immediately got up and followed him and left their father and their nets. Now, he called all of the disciples to follow him all the apostles. But there's one apostle that his, his calling is a little more dramatic than the others. In the ninth chapter of Acts, we find a fellow named Saul on his way to Damascus. And he's, he's, his reason for going to Damascus in Syria is to persecute the church and to throw every Christian he can find into chains and take them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. But Jesus had another plan. And he knocked, uh, he knocked Paul, or Saul, as he was called then, off his feet. And he blinded him and told him to go into the city of Damascus and go to uh, a certain place and then God told a fellow named Ananias who lived on a, a, a particular street. And he said, go to the street, uh, the street called Straight and enter the house and you'll find a man named Saul there. And I want you to lay hands on him so that he can see again because he's my chosen vessel. I've called him to follow me. Ananias said, eh, nope. I've heard about this guy. He's a bad character. I'm not going to go. But God said, go because I've chosen him. He is, going, he is my chosen uh, 
messenger to the Gentiles. You couldn't find a, a Jew who was any more Jewish than Saul. And he, he'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Ananias went, put his hands on, 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 Paul, on Saul, and he received his sight. Later on, Saul becomes known as Paul, and it's Paul that is writing this letter to the, to the Ephesian church. But so, so Paul is, is telling the Ephesian church, the Gentiles, by and large, it was a Gentile church, and most of the churches that would read this letter, including the folks that are sitting here today, are Gentiles. Paul was indeed the missionary to the Gentiles. So he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So guess what? You've been called. I've been called. God has called everyone who names the name of Jesus to be his witnesses. And so he's telling the church at Ephesus, that they need to walk worthy of that call that they have on their lives. So we've, we've talked about the call and we've talked about these different calls that God made on uh, all of these individuals. So where does this come into play now? Well, remember I said at the beginning that Paul is writing this second half of the letter to the Ephesians to give them practical, uh, practical application of all the theology that they've already received. But they need to know how to do it, and we need to know how to do it too. So he says, you're to do this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another and love. So we think we know what humility is. Paul um, gives us a picture of his humiliation in, uh, in Philippians. And, and he says, in the third chap of, chapter of Philippians, if I can find it, um, he said that, Paul writes, writes to the church at Philippians uh, at Philippi in verses one through 20, and 20, verses 27 through 28 of chapter one, and he says, "Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for your faith." for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarm, alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And this, too, is from God. Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy of our very best conduct and, and unity as believers. So God has, God has chosen his, his messengers to give us information, He's written it in his word, and that's why we're reading it this morning, so that we know how to walk worthy. So he says, uh, we're to be, to be uh, humble and gentleness and peace are, are mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 as fruit of the spirit, spirit. And he says, now love, peace, and gentleness and patience are, uh, are there. How can I do that? And you might say, well, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. He tells us in his book how to do that. I can't do it. You know, it, hum, humility is one of those things that when you think you've got it, you don't. Uh, it's, it's like a vapor that escapes. So think, well, I'm so proud of my, my of my humility, I finally I finally arrived, and God says, "Oh no, you haven't." So, 
God can do this through the very indwelling of his Holy Spirit. That's, that's why the passage in Galatians 5 refers to these fruit as fruit of the Spirit, because the Spirit indwells us. He comes into our life, our lives to live, and that's the way we live our lives, is through the Spirit. He's talking about the relationship between the believers. This is, a, this is a message written to people who are already followers of Christ. He says we're showing patience and tolerance for one another in love. Now, uh, Paul gives us a picture of his own humility when he writes in Philippians 3, 2 through 11. We're going to lift out a few verses just for the sake of the illustration. For we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in the flesh I have more. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee and as to the righteousness that is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained, these things I have counted as lost because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost or rubbish in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as mere rubbish so that I may get gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the rich righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So how do we become righteous? How do we, how do we become humble? It's through God speaking through our lives. You have to, we have to pay attention. I'm, I'm speaking to you, but I'm speaking to myself as well. We have to have patience. We have to allow God to work through us. Probably the, the truest picture of humility that we have in Scripture we find in Philippians 2. It, it, Paul writes this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God did not count equality with God with, as something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. What Paul is saying there is our example is Jesus. Our, our, our example is Christ because before he came to earth he was he was he had the equality he had equality with God but he didn't think it was worth holding on to so he came to earth humbled himself as a man and went to the cross and bore our sins so We'll take, a, we'll take just a few minutes to talk about the qualities, these qualities that Paul mentions in, in verses 2 and 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's interesting that you can find these qualities that Paul is talking about here. The humility, the gentleness, patience, uh, tolerance or forbearance, uh, and they, those are found in that list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And so he, he says, but you need to be diligent. So that tells us, that word diligent tells me that it's going to require some effort on your part. And most of that effort is, being, is going to be getting out of God's way and letting him work through you by his Holy Spirit. He'll do it for us. 
if you'll just gotta get out of the way. It's kind of like hiring a plumber to come and fix a leak. And when the plumber gets there, you get in his way and you start and you, all you do is make things worse. Let the, let the professional, the one who knows best, do his job and he'll take care of it. So this requires, all of this requires something called self-control. Now, I, I read an a, a interview, a, a, an interview a, a number of years ago. A, a fellow was interviewing a, a general, uh, uh, an American general from World War II. And he asked him, he said, what do you think the most important character trait you have what, that you had that helped you to be su a successful general, to gui guide troops and to, to was, it, was it the knowledge of tactics or was it the knowledge of history and warfare and all these things? He said, no. The one trait that I, that I value more than any other is self-control. Not, not becoming impatient, not getting outside of myself, but understanding that if I don't exercise self-control, the men under me won't. And so self-control is important in this, in this case, and it makes up, it's, it's, it's made up of these different components. So he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So what's, the, what's he talking about when he talks about the unity of the Spirit? He's going to tell us. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and, and through all and in all. So in these verses, we see the word one seven times. I learned a long time ago that when you, in scripture, when you see a word three times, that means God wants you to pay attention. So if he uses it seven times, he must, it must mean that he really, really wants us to pay attention. So he talks about there's one body. One body, what's he talking about? He's talking about the body of believers, the body of Christ. We who are believers... People in this room, you may not be a member of this church, but you are a member of God's church if you've trusted Christ through faith. And with every other believer on the face of the planet, you're part of the body of Christ. In fact, you're, you're a member of the body of Christ with even those who have gone before, who've already perished and, and who have, are in the presence of, of God. Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, so we're one with those people that are already there, that are already experiencing the presence of Christ in his presence. So there's one body and there's one spirit. Now, the spirit he's talking about here is God's own spirit. Jesus Jesus told his disciples in chapters 14 and 16 of, John, of the book of John, the Gospel of John, that after he left, he was going to send the Comforter, his, his Holy Spirit, to comfort them, to give them direction. The, the, the job of the Spirit was also to, con to be convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And so that's what the Holy Spirit is doing through us today. And he's guiding, he's guiding our lives if we'll allow him to do so. And that's why, that's why Paul says, I, I urge you, I implore you, that ye walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He goes on to say that that's in uh, unity of the Spirit, uh, or he sa has said already in the, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he said, you've been called in one hope, Every, every believer, everyone who has ever trusted Jesus as their own personal Savior has 
the same hope, has had the same calling as you've had, if you if you've trusted that. The hope that we're that we're relying upon, that we're trusting in, is the hope of the resurrection. Just as Jesus Christ was was raised from the grave, we have that hope because he was raised. So we have that hope of resurrection. He says, there's one baptism. There's, oh, I'm sorry, there's one Lord. Who's, who's the one Lord? Jesus is Lord. And we proclaim that to the glory of the Father. And he says, there's one faith. Now, I don't know what you think about all the different denominations. I don't think God's worried about them. I think he's more concerned with how we follow his word and how we trust him than how many denominations there are. I think God is going to sort that all out. And I happen to believe I'm a Baptist. I happen to believe in in what Baptists believe, the, the interpretation of scripture according to Baptist doctrine. And I'm, so I'm a Baptist. Now, there are, other, there are other denominations. Separate that from other religions. There are other religions out there. We know that there are cults. We know there are religions that are not based on faith in Christ. And we're, that's why we're still here. Because God wants us to win those people that haven't trusted him. So he says there's there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. When I was a young man, a long time ago, about 50 years younger than I, than I am right now, I worked in an oil field. And I worked with a guy, and he, he said something that has stuck with me, and I... I I didn't believe it then, I don't believe it now. But his idea was that if you haven't been baptized in a creek or a river, you've not really been baptized. And you know why he said that? Because Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Well, I was not... I guess my grandpa baptized me when I was about five years old because he grabbed me by the seat of the pants and threw me in the creek and said, swim. <laughs> That's how I learned to swim. But, but Paul's not talking about water baptism here. He's not talking about baptism in order to become a member of the local church. There are churches that sprinkle. There are churches that that dip. I don't understand dipping, but I know that it's a thing. There, there, there are churches that, and, and we baptize by immersion. We believe that's consistent with Scripture. But there's one baptism, and that baptism that Paul's talking about here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You and I, when we trusted Jesus Christ, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into our lives at that point. We were given a new birth. That Spirit still lives in us. Now you know that the Scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What he's talking about is behave. Because when, you don't, when you're not obedient to God, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. But this Holy Spirit, that's one, think about this. I know some of you have probably had DNA tests to determine part of your heritage. Uh, Mine are, as you can tell from my pale skin and my formerly red hair, my ancestors were from Northern Europe and Northwestern Ireland, where the sun only shone about 80 days out of the year. It's still true today about this. 
no matter what your DNA, and you look around the room and you see people that look different than you, have different complexions, have, or have different eth ethnicities, different nationalities, but Paul's writing to these people who are Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying there's one baptism, and there's one spirit, and you've been baptized into that spirit, and he lives in all of us. So part of our DNA, our spiritual DNA, and it's common for all of us that have trusted Christ, is the Holy Spirit living within us. So he says, there's one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But then he says in verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Why does he say that? Why is that so important? God is, God is one. In, uh, in uh, Mark 12, one of the scribes that heard Jesus debating with the, with the Pharisees said, uh, uh, Master, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. But he, then he said, the second is, is, is important as well. I'm, this is the man revised slandered version case you're trying to look it up he said he said the second is like to that and that is to love your neighbor as yourself and he's going to talk about love in a little bit but God is one now we say some people ask the question well if God's one then what how, how do we get to the father and the, and the son and the holy spirit God is a triune a, a trinity a triunity, as one of my professors in college called it. There are three persons in the Godhead. And, and God allowed Jesus to come to earth to die for my sins and for your sins. And, and Jesus is now ascended on high. And we have the Holy Spirit living with us as he promised the, the apostles in, in John chapters 14 and 15. He said, this one God is our father. Now, I revere my dad. Uh, I often say that my dad was my hero. Uh, I knew that he loved me. He loved my mother and my sister. But I have another father. And he's the father that loves me even more than my dad did. And he loves you more than anyone else ever has. And his word says that within the church, within every believer, he is over all, he's through all, and he's in all. So through the Holy Spirit, we have God residing in us. We, we were talking in Sunday school about uh, at a certain point in time in the Old Testament, we know in Ezekiel that the, the Spirit of the Lord departed from the temple, and it was a sad day for Israel. But then when they came back from captivity, they started rebuilding the temple, and, and God told them that at some point, he was going to dwell in their midst, in the midst of Jerusalem, and everybody thought, okay, he's going to inhabit the temple. Well, uh, when Jesus came into the temple, that was God visiting the temple. He didn't remain in the temple. He didn't take up residence in the temple. And when he came into the temple to cleanse the temple, in, I think, Matthew 25, he overturned the, the tables of the money changers and he made a, scour a scourge of cords and drove everybody out that was not behaving as they should in the temple. Well, I think sometimes God may need to come into this temple because in Galatians 3, or in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, 
Paul tells us that we are the temple of God. And I think sometimes he needs to come into this temple and turn over the, the, the money changers tables and all those things that distract us from obeying God and drive those things out. And how do we do that? We do that by prayer, by reading the Bible, and following what God's told us to do. It's a matter of obedience. So, there's one Father, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, God has, you know, you, you have to go back to John 3.16. God loved us so much that he gave his only son that we might not perish, but have eternal life. And that means life with him. We have, if you're a believer in God, you're living eternal life right now because the Holy Spirit is living in you. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to die. You're not going to depart this flesh. Some people say, hallelujah. But we're going to have a new body, and we're going to live with God eternally. So we're going to get to meet him personally. So he says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And I need to hurry on here. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I don't have time to go into that, but you need to get into it. He says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also that descended into the lower parts of the earth he who descended is himself, he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fulfill all things. He's talking about Jesus. So Jesus gave gifts. Now, if you're a believer, if you're born again, if you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior, you have a gift. Now, I'm talking about the spiritual birth. We know that when we're, when we're born, we, have, we, are, we are given abilities, natural, what we call natural abilities. Some people are, are better looking. Some, some people are more athletic. Some people are, uh, have a higher intellectual aptitude. Some people have a, a better aptitude for music. I'm not one of those people. But we know that we have these natural abilities. But God says, I've also given you a, a gift by my spirit. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about Jesus passed out presents before he went back to heaven. But through the Holy Spirit, we've been given a gift. And there are different, there are different lists. Probably one of the, and, and, and he talks about these here. He says, he says you gave uh, some as apostles, some as prophets. Those two uh, particular uh, ministries, my, my belief is that those two no longer exist. The apostles passed off the scene with the passing of, of the apostle John, who, as far as we know, was the, the last apostle to live. And prophets ended in the first century also. But, he says there are some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Now that's not an exhaustive list. If, if you want to find an exhaustive list, list, you need to go to 1 Corinthians 12. There's, there's, there are probably as many as 20 spiritual gifts that are distributed among the church. Now why did he do that? And he's going to tell us. He says in verse 12, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Guess what? That gift that you have was meant to be used. Not to, not to be hoarded, not to sit up and say, I've got, this is my gift and I'm going to use it for my own personal benefit. No, it's for the benefit of the body, to build up the body into the fullness of Christ. And we're to build up the body of Christ by using our spiritual gifts as he intended. 
He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Wow. How is that possible? It's only possible through the Spirit. We can't do it with our own efforts. We can't, just like you can't work your way to salvation, you can't, you can't get baptized and suddenly you're a Christian. Baptism, water baptism follows regeneration, okay? But through the Holy Spirit, we work together to, to realize, to, to fulfill the stature of Christ. And he says, as a, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Now, evidently, well, we know from, from the book of Acts and, uh, and other writings of Paul and, and the other apostles that there were some naughty people in the first century. There were some nasty characters. There were people who were false teachers, false prophets. Uh, at one point, Peter says that these false teachers come in and they lead silly women astray. Now, I don't think it's all on the women. I think there are some silly men that have been led astray as well. <laughs> Thank you. But just as we have cults, we have false teachers, we have false teachings, we have false religions today, they existed then as well. And Paul said, you're not to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men and deceitful scheming. I'll throw out one, one fact for you. In the 1960s, it was revealed that there were more Southern Baptists who had converted to Mormonism than any other denomination. What does that say about the teaching, the, the comprehension of those people who were easy, that easily led astray and to follow that cult? So Paul is saying, don't be like little children. Now, we're to be like children when we trust Christ. We're just to, to, to trust him in, in faith and follow him. But when we're living as adult, mature Christians, we need to be aware. And how, how do we know? How do we know what's a false teaching or, or what's, what's the truth? Does everything that the preacher says, what do I need to do? Well, you need to read your Bible, number one. You need to pray and ask God to, to lead you. And I'm going to give you a pitch for Sunday school and Bible study. You need to be studying the Bible with other believers. That's the way you're going to know whether what you're hearing. Most, many people in our world today base their theology and doctrine on the last book they read or some radio preacher or television evangelist that they heard. And they say, well, if Brother So-and-so said it, it must be right. Well, did you check it out with the Word? So, you know, this book is given to us for reproof, for doctrine, and for correction. And we need, we need, to, we need to follow that. We need to be obedient to that. So, he, says, he continues. He says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Let me just say that again. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? Too many times we've seen, I'll use air quotes, 
mature Christian just be brutally honest? In fact, one commentator says that, that truth without love is brutality. But he also says love without truth is hypocrisy. So we need, and I heard one of my fellow deacons a number of years ago say this when we were talking about dealing with people. He said, we need to be honest but gentle. We need to be honest but gentle. But we need to be truthful. That means that we don't twist scripture to fit our own agenda. We don't, uh, when we talk to somebody about the, the scriptures, we make sure that we're talking from, we're consistent with what the Bible says. If we'll do that, what Paul says, we'll grow up into all, in all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. That's, that's his recipe for us as believers. If we'll speak the truth in love, if, if we'll recognize that he's given us these gifts and he's given us for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to regress here for just a minute. Let me ask you a question. If you're not using the gifts that God has given you for the express purpose of building up the body, what does that mean? And you don't, I, I'm not asking for an answer. I'm gonna, I'm, it's a rhetorical question. Maybe I am being rhetorical. But it means that the body's not working as it properly should. Let's say that my left leg decided that it wasn't going to come in for work today. What would that mean for my body? I'd be hopping around on one leg. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be complete. So Paul says when, our, when, our, when we're given gifts, they're given for the purpose of building up the body to the fullness of Christ. And so if you, if you don't know what your gift is, find out and then put it to use in the body, in the local body. And it'll multiply out into the worldwide church. And then he says, from who, and, and this is a continuation of verse 15. He says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Let me say that again. According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And it's only by, the, by allowing God's Holy Spirit to work through us. And if you don't feel like God's speaking to you, get in the Word, start praying, start studying the Word with other believers, and I guarantee you, God will start speaking to you. And if He doesn't, that means we need to check, we need to check up. Have I really been saved? Did I really, you know, I, I was, I know I was baptized, but I, but I, but I ever, tr did I ever truly trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior? I'm not, I'm not judging anybody, but we need to examine ourselves and see if we're truly in the faith. We owe it to our, we owe it to ourselves. And if we're believers, we owe it to our Savior. And that's Paul's point here. We're not going to continue through the rest of the passage because I'm already out of time. But I'd like, to, I'd like to pray at this point because there may be some people here who are saying, well, I, I don't understand what you're saying, Jerry. I don't, I'm not doubting you, but but that just doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't, I don't, I don't get it. I'm going to pray, and this may be a time for you to pray as well, just to, to pray and humble yourself before God and say, Lord, 
I repent of my sin. I want your forgiveness. And I want to follow you as you've called me to follow you. As the way that Paul is talking about in this passage in Ephesians. So let's pray.